Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout days. No blackout days. No blackout days. No blackout days. We all went to go get on this roller coaster, and I was the only one that was not allowed to get on because I was like just barely too short. So that's your traumatic experience from childhood? Being like a few inches shorter than you would love life to be. But I think what's cool about roller coasters, people associate them with good times. You don't, you associate it with being too short. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. We got a great one for you today with our new friend, Eugene Buchanan. Eugene is an adventure traveler and writer. He's been all over the globe as a journalist. He uh, he started the site paddlinglife.com, which is the go-to resource for enthusiastic paddlers of all stripes. Eugene also writes for Men's Journal and a number of other high-tier publications. Today, he's here to put all of our adventure travel stories to shame with some of the crazy adventures he's done, both in South America and Russia, and the one he just got back from, uh, spending seven days sea kayaking off the coast of Iceland. So the guy's got some good stories. We're going to get into those in a minute. Real quick, Eben, what do you have to add here? Uh, not much, Tim. Honestly, Eugene is the coolest person I've ever met named Eugene. I'll tell you that. And how many people have you ever met named Eugene? Uh, I mean, I could count them on one hand. I'm also including characters I've seen in movies. But I've got to tell you, they're generally not that cool. Well, I feel like the city of Eugene in Oregon is is pretty cool, although I think Eugene himself, the character here, might be a little bit cooler. That's kind of a high standard to hold someone to, though, isn't it? Like one one man against the city. Can you is is that a fair contest? Is one man can one man be cooler than an entire city? Well, the benefit that one man has is that the one man can just kind of fend for himself and create the image he wants. A city has to be the sum of all of its people. Exactly. A city has to be all things at all times. What city do you think you're cooler than probably none flint michigan you think you're cooler than flint no i don't actually uh, come on have some self-esteem i've been to flint michigan flint michigan and and general central northern michigan in my opinion is an amazing place i'm actually going there in a month all right tim this isn't a sponsored segment you can can talk talk real real talk right now i'm talking real brah all right, so Flint, Michigan, check it out. And also stay tuned and check out our interview with Eugene coming up soon. But first, we're going to get into hot takes. Tim, I hear you have some door slammers for me. I do. So the first door slammer of the day has a lot more to do about getting to your adventure travel destination rather than the actual adventure travel expedition itself. And the question, Evan, is small airports or large? Ooh, that is a good door slammer of the day. A DSOTD, if you will. I'm gonna, hmm, I'm gonna go with large, because so here's the thing: small airports have the benefit of being convenient. They have the benefit of being more easy to navigate. But larger airports have more food options. They have lounges. They have, uh, I, I there, yeah, there's more people. But I feel like there's also more personnel. So they're better equipped to handle the crowds, whereas a smaller regional airport might be more easily overwhelmed and you might have longer lines. Um, that might be wrong. I mean, official stats might prove that completely wrong, but the smaller airports I've been to tend to have been less well-organized and just amenities. You can't beat the amenities at a larger airport. 
I one small air, the smallest airport I've ever been to was in Greenland. And I'll always remember this airport. It was, it was beautiful. It was uh, like on this hill above a town called Elusiat and or Elulasat. And it was one gate. There was no food whatsoever. There was one vending machine. So I think I bought like three Snickers bars, like giant Snickers bars and four bags of M&Ms in the three and a half hours I had to sit there waiting for my flight. And it was that's the absolutely disgusting thing to eat before you go on a plane. But anyway, so this airport, you walk out of it and you are just in the hills. You're in the Greenland hills. You're in the rugged countryside. And that's a much cooler place to wait for your flight than just sitting at the gate. So that had, had that going for it. I mean, I used to be more of a big airport person, I would say, until I moved out to Palisade. And now I fly in and out of Grand Junction Regional all the time. And I love it. It's not a small regional airport. It's probably on the bigger side of regionals. You know, there's a handful of gates. There's several different airlines coming in and out to several different cities. You know, it pretty much flies all over the western U.S. uh, and Chicago and a couple other spots. So it's as far as regional goes, it's functional, but it's not crowded in the way that a major international airport is like the last time i was flying in and out a couple of weeks ago i literally walked straight to the tsa agent at security i was at the gate with my laptop out within seven minutes of having been dropped off out front probably less than that so you like know everybody at the uh the grand junction airport right like you walk in they all know you i recognize faces at this point for sure uh i do know danny uh who we had on the pod several months ago uh, who has actually boarded my flight before, which is how I actually first met him in person for the first time. But it is the type of an airport where I don't know everybody's name. I don't know their story. I don't know necessarily which airline they work for, but I do recognize faces when I'm in there. I picture you strolling in, the cheers music hits. Everyone turns around, raises their glass. Oh, Tim. Oh, Tim. What's up, man? Where are you going today? That doesn't happen. It's, is that not? I mean, don't shatter my illusion. The raising of the glass part maybe a bit of an ex- an exception but other than that it's kind of like that i don't know if they know my name either but it is the type of place where if you fly in and out regularly you're going to see the same faces the grand junction airport where everyone knows your name okay uh next airport or excuse me next hot takes question here uh also about airports restaurants opening outposts in airports is this good or is this unnecessary and what i mean is not necessarily like a Chili's opening a Chili's at an airport because a Chili's is the same everywhere you go. I'm thinking of like, you know, a city like Denver that's known for breweries. Denver International Airport has multiple breweries in the airport, but you know they're not actually brewing beer there. Is it necessary or is it just like a cheesy marketing gimmick? If I like the restaurant that's in the city and then they open one in the airport, I'm going to be happy. I think I understand what you're saying about the breweries, but breweries have an air of pretentious individualism about them that I think most restaurants don't. You're right. Most beer probably isn't being brewed in an airport at an airport brewery. And that I think detracts from the authenticity of that brewery. So I get that. I get not being stoked on that. But if it's just a a pizza chain or like another restaurant that's in Boston that I like, and that they then expand. If it's like, say, like Kelly's Roast Beef, just to pick one, it's in Logan Airport. I'll be happy, you know? I know I'm familiar with the menu. I like the food. Who am I to shit on that? Right, right. Fair enough. What I do want to know now, actually, uh, that we're on this topic is where's the airport that they're actually brewing beer? That's the airport I want to have a layover in. 
I think that that's the next article for you, Tim. That's your next angle. Airport breweries that actually brew their own beer. Right. That's great. I'll bring that to our next pitch call. I've Yeah, you're welcome. I've just done your homework for you for the next pitch meeting. Thanks, buddy. Um, oh, it's my turn already. All right, let's go. Hot takes for you, Tim. Uh, my first question is, are people who take calls in coffee shops being rude? No, not necessarily. I take calls in coffee shops all the time. In fact, I took our podcast uh, planning call in a coffee shop <laughs> a couple of days ago. I know you did. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is coming from a professional coffee shop remote worker that has been doing this for more than a decade. There is a there is a correct and an incorrect way to work in coffee shops, especially if you're doing calls. You need to always have headphones for sure because nobody wants to hear what the other people are saying. And you need to be considerate and aware of what's happening around you. There's no reason you need to be sitting in the middle of the action or right next to the register or something like that where when you're talking, it's going to be distracting everybody else. You know, I try to sit maybe outside on the patio or the other day I was sitting in a back room, but I was the only one in this back room. Uh, or at least position yourself far enough away and be mindful of the volume of your voice. There's definitely a way to do it that you're not inconveniencing anybody on either end of the call. But I will say, Tim, for all the steps that you've taken, the other day on our call, you, there was you had to pause because there was a, a coffee grinder going on behind you. And it was very loud and very noticeable. And you'd say, sorry, guys, they're grinding coffee beans behind me. Yeah. And everyone laughed. That's fine if that happens once. But it's you can't you can't control the noise in a coffee shop there's people talking there's people grinding coffee beans there's registers there are there are noises and there's two sides of it so you're number one you're not wanting to annoy the people that you're on the call with with your background noise and you're also not wanting to annoy the people who sit next to you at the coffee shop with your voice level so that's just about keeping your voice in check which I've seen people definitely not do before. And then everyone's staring at that person. So there's a lot of things to keep keep track of and a lot of things you can't control. You can't control if a bunch of people suddenly sit next to you because then you know maybe you were alone and not inconveniencing anyone before and now you suddenly are. So it's a tough balance. You know what, Evan? And uh, you've, wa- you've walked yourself into a corner here with this because I personally happen to also know your opinion on co-working spaces and that you think they're worthless, well, you just talked yourself right into the need for a co-working space membership. Or just staying at home for free and doing the call in the comfort of my house. <laughs> ah, that's boring. We won't, bore, we won't bore people with our co-working space argument again because I think they've... Uh, frequent listeners have heard that no less than a dozen times, but... That's right. We'll put the story... We, we did a, uh, counter, a point-counterpoint article for Matador Network that we'll put in the show notes. Okay. Next question... Are roller coasters bullshit? I don't think so. I like roller coasters. Uh, in general, I've had good experiences. However, I did have one relatively unfortunate experience when I was a kid. Uh, I think I was in second grade, and I was going to a birthday party for my friend at Elitch Gardens in Denver. Uh, and there was a crew of us. A couple of the kids were, I think, a year or two older than me. But we all went to go get on this roller coaster, and I was the only one that was not allowed to get on because I was like just barely too short to get on. And that memory has never escaped me. I have held on to that memory. And now every time I go on a roller coaster or any ride where there's one of those little cardboard cutouts of a dinosaur holding up a ruler, you know, even though I'm above the line now, I, I, that, I think of it every single time. So that's your traumatic experience from childhood? As far as amusement parks go, yeah. Yeah, that's so being like a few inches shorter than you would love like to be. 
is that's 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 mm-hmm. like what really sticks with you to anyone else all these other people who have you know real like harrowing childhood experiences and like actual traumas pulled up for a sec because tim wasn't quite tall enough to go on a roller coaster so right right that's terrible that's, experience. that's okay but i, I think we're, what i'm going with this question really is i think roller coasters are just a fascinating phenomenon if you really think about what they are and what you're paying for you're paying to be strapped into like a like an open car jettisoned through the air and then end up back at your starting point five minutes later when you lay it out on paper like that it just sounds so ridiculous and of course i understand the thrill of an adrenaline rush but i almost feel like like humans have evolved to the point that we've come so far from our survival roots where we had to worry about staying alive and and fighting for our survival that we just are looking for things to inject fear and chaos into our everyday life like roller coasters like our everyday lives are so cushy and so comfortable and so mundane that we are now at the point where we have to pay to get the shit scared out of us and that, i think that's like an interesting thing yeah i mean you are correct in saying that the point of a roller coaster is to take us back to a sort of more chaotic existence and you're paying money to experience a fake discomfort because our lives have become so safe and that that is inescapable with a roller coaster but i think what's cool about roller coasters is that people associate roller coasters with good times they associate them with hanging out with their friends they associate them with you know an easy thrill and i i think that's cool you don't you associate it with being too short yes i yes i am i'm an outlier probably though i still like roller coasters i still do enjoy roller coasters i would go on a roller coaster tomorrow if the opportunity presented itself how about that overcoming a real childhood trauma and just getting right back on the horse yeah it's a thrill thing man yeah you gotta respect it the lifetime movie's coming out next year Tim Winger, not too short anymore. Who's laughing now? Who's laughing now? You know, and then it's a photo of me walking past the, the you know, 15-year-old clerk that has to tell kids that they can't go on the ride. <laughs> well, Evan, we're going to take you on a real-life roller coaster ride now with Eugene Buchanan, who has a lot of stories that are pretty freaking wild. So we'll get into it with Eugene now, and we'll see you on the other side. Unbelievable segue. All right, we're here with Eugene. How you doing, man? Thanks for joining us. Awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, from what I understand, you just returned from quite the epic adventure of uh, of kayaking off the coast of Iceland. Why don't we start with a little bit of that? Because I'm going to venture to guess that the vast majority of people, myself included, have never done a seven-day kayaking trip. So, what all goes into planning and executing something like that? You know, that was, uh, yeah, it was an awesome trip. I took my uh, daughter up there with me. She's 18, so she tagged along with it. Um, It was a trip we were going to do last summer, but then, you know, the pandemic shut everything down. I had a lot of trips canceled last year, actually. So, this is one of the first ones I was able to resurrect. Uh, and we went up, actually, I got a buddy who runs a, uh, an outdoor biz up there called Borea Expeditions, um, up, uh, out of this place called Isa Fjord in the far Northwest corner of uh, the country. So it's just fjord land. You know, if you put your hands together and make it look like that, that's like the, in between the fingers is like how many fjords they have everywhere there. So you're just paddling in and out of these things with, you know, missed whales and, uh, seals and, uh, waterfalls. I mean, so many waterfalls up there that you're just drinking right out of. You just, you know, scoop your, fill up your Nalgene right in them. And uh, 
There's so many waterfalls that at one point my daughter said, um, hey, dad, remember that one place we stopped to rest? That place that didn't have a waterfall? Yeah, right. Like, oh, yeah, the place that didn't. Yeah, that, that narrows it down. Is it? Yeah, so it was a great trip. Is it dangerous? What's the water like? I mean, and where are you guys sleeping? Where? What's the camping situation? No, because, you know, you're on the ocean. So this, so this was a sea kayak trip, okay. you know, a lot different than, uh, you know, whitewater, you know, rafting or whitewater kayaking trip. Um, and I've done a bunch of those. You know, I used to guide up in Alaska and would go out into Prince William Sound every year and take, you know, you could do as much long. Our biggest one I've done is like a 12-day self-support trip, sea kayaking. But uh, I don't know if you guys ever see kayak, but it is just such a great way to travel and train like that because you have the water is like backpacking, but the water is carrying all the weight, you know. So you just you got hatches in your boat. You got it. The only hard part is you got to pack everything in a bunch of small bags rather than like one or two big ones because it has to fit in these hatches that are all pretty small. So you're constantly kind of juggling your gear and pulling it out and putting your dry bag in first and then filling it, you know, that kind of stuff. So. We did stay at uh, two kind of old sheep herder cottages along the way. So I uh, stayed there for two of the nights, which is nice. You could go in. One of them had a wood-fired sauna. So you're plunging into the ocean, you know, at midnight. Um, and then after that, the rest was camping, moving camp uh, kind of point to point. So, yeah, it was an awesome trip. Great to have my daughter along, too, and show her that kind of that kind of scene up there. Total just wilderness, clear air, wilderness clean water. And then you get back to Colorado. That was just, you know, Denver had its worst air air advisory record in the world, I guess, or whatever, right? When we got back. So it's like, oh, bring me back to Iceland. Now, was this a group trip or was it just you and your daughter? Yeah, no, it was a, we tagged along with the group, but it's kind of this company's most serious, you know, kind of a sea kayak trip they put together. So, I mean, I would, you know, I got a pretty you know, decent, decent paddling resume, I think, but I was like the sixth strongest paddler because everyone else is just these hardcore sea kayaker guys from one. Now uh, we had this Dane who was there, you know, we're all introducing ourselves and, you know, kind of talking about our backgrounds. And he's like, you know, last year I paddled 3000 kilometers in kayak, you know, so maybe... it's like, all right, all right, settle down, not a contest. Yeah. And we had this couple from Israel who's a member of the Israeli paddling club, you know, so they're out training on the Mediterranean. Yeah, who the isn't time. though? Come on. Yeah, exactly. So, and then of course our two guides were the Anula and Pyotr or these two guides from Poland who are total studs also. So, I mean, it's not like I was on the leading the front of the pack the whole time. Were these um, other riders or were they just like tourists that were really into paddling? No, no, these were all, you know, sea kayak adventurers, okay. you know, who don't, you know, planning a trip yourself up there is relatively logistically challenging. You got to get all the way up there. You got to get a boat to drop you to, you know, it's a two hour boat ride to get from Issa Fjord, which is a puddle jump flight from Reykjavik, you know, to get to the fjord land where you need to start. And then so it's. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if it was part of like a press trip itinerary and you were one of one yeah, of, one of many press trips. Trip. Okay. Because I'll get those sometimes when like you get a, a pressure, but it's relatively, you know, relaxed, it's chill. And then they'll like throw in like a crazy adventure day that I'm like not qualified at all to do. And I always wonder like, right, right. like what makes you think I can do that? Like um, it was some Caribbean island. It was like, you're going to go like deep sea diving, like scuba diving. And I'm like, are you just assuming that I'm like scuba certified? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do that. Who do you think I am? Yeah, no, and I've done, I've done my share of kind of press trips, you know, around the world and stuff as well. And they definitely, they have to cater to a diverse kind of a, skill set 
uh, depending on who they get to tag along. Or lack of skill set in my case. <laughs> exactly. What do you prefer, traveling with kind of like the sea kayak people, like that kind of group, like just regular travelers who are really passionate about uh, uh, one kind of sport or activity, or doing a press trip with other people of your field that are writers, photographers, whatever, that are more more diverse? You know, I'm kind of more of an expedition-y guy. I mean, press trips are, to, I mean, they're great if you can go, you know, see an area you haven't been to before, but they're a little pampered and catered for my taste, you know, and they're ushering you around really quick and trying to have as big an emphasis on food as the activity, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I kind of like getting out in the sticks a little bit, um, you know, and, and doing, you know, some bigger expeditions, which you never really get on a press trip. Press trips always kind of, or a little softer. Tim, um, you're an adventure guy. What do you think? The adventure trip or press trip? I mean, I, I would be inclined to say adventure trip as well. However, I have been like the best. I There's some that are the middle of the road between that, I feel like. Like I did a, a, a ski theme trip to Banff where everyone in the group was, you know, at least an upper intermediate and pretty much everybody was really into it that was on the trip. So we were actually ripping good stuff and it snowed a lot and everybody was really excited. So there is a middle of the road sometimes, but those are few and farther between. All right. PR people, if you're listening, stop pitching Tim press trips. They're too soft, too pampered, not extreme enough for them. Just skip up, skip over them, send them to me. Give them to me and Evan. We'll go. Yeah, there you go. I, I'm curious about, so you had to, what's the COVID situation there with quarantining with, did you have to show a vaccine passport? What's going on in Iceland that we can get the on the ground reporting on? That's an interesting uh, question and topic that you bring up because uh, yeah, we, uh, I might end up doing a story on this at some point. I mean, I'm doing a story on this trip for men's journal, you know, anyways, on kind of sea kayak in Iceland. Um, That'll run, you know, sometime I think later this fall, but Turns out on our, well, one, yeah, you had to show your VAX cards and get tested to even get into the country before you left, uh, which, you know, no big deal. Everyone's kind of doing that these days. Mm-hmm. But when we got up there, it was like day four, day three or four of our trip. You know, one of our guides in the morning, this gal, Anula, comes in and says, well, team, have we got some news. I'm trying to emulate her accent here. Spot on. Turns out that, you know, we, we had possible exposure to someone who tested positive at the first little cottage we stayed at. Oh God. One of the cooks or whatever, I guess, tested positive. So that news catches up with us like three or four days later. And then Iceland has an automatic seven day quarantine. If you come into contact with someone who's tested positive. So then we're all there and we're like, well, shit, you know, we're out here in the boondocks anyways. We might as well, we got three or four days left on our trip. Might as well just keep quarantining out here, huh guys? So we did, you know, we can fin- finished our, the rest of our trip. Three of the people along, we're only going to go for the first four days and we're planning to have a boat come up to pick them up and leave. They ended up changing their plans just on the fly and joining us for the rest of the trip. Rather be out there where we were paddling amongst waterfalls and whales than stuck in some quarantine hotel. So they stayed with us. Um, and then when we got into the only bummer was at the end of the trip, you know, it'd been nice to like, uh, you know, I have a hotel in Issa Fjord, you know, relax, dry out your gear. But we had to have somehow Borea Expeditions somehow found rental cars for us to drive all the way down to Reykjavik through the middle of the night, six hour drive. We left at like 11 at night, straight from our gear into the trip. We paddled like 25 kilometers that day. So we're pretty dang tired. And then had to go straight into a rental car, drive all the way to Reykjavik to some quarantine hotel 
where we showed up at like four in the morning there, just exhausted. You know, the place is covered with police tape. It's got people in hazmat suits inside. And so we just went from the most, you know, pristine wilderness environment you can imagine for a week, right into like civilization and had to be stuck there for two nights until we could take our test on Sunday, which is seven or eight days after our quote exposure, even though we were all fine. Um, and then, you know, thank God we tested negative. So otherwise we would have been stuck there another two weeks in the hotel, which kind of, you know, caused my 18 year old daughter to break down a little bit because she's getting ready to go back to college. Last thing she wanted to be was cooped up with dad in a hotel room. So one thing we nerd out on pretty regularly on this podcast is uh, packing and travel gear. And I'm curious when you're going on a, on a trip like that, where that involves at least one multiple or excuse me, at least one round trip international flight, how do you go about packing river gear and planning for that? as opposed to how you would do it if you were just going, you know, somewhere in Colorado or Utah or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's hard. I mean, we use these big, uh, I have a couple of big, you know, wheeled roller duffels, you know, like from Eagle Creek, which unfortunately is going out of business now, the VF Corps. Uh, Eagle. Oh, Creek. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, hmm. They announced that a few months ago anyways. Um, so I have a couple of those. We fill those to capacity. We had to bring dry suits over you know, one piece fleece things, dry bags. Um, you know, we didn't have to bring life jackets or break down paddles or anything. We could pick those up over there, but our, uh, our bags are pretty darn full. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, jet boil is back up, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and the majority of our stuff, since the majority of our time over there was, you know, out in the wilds camping, that was probably, you know, 80, 90% of our gear for the rest of it. I just brought a couple of shirts and a, pair of pants and of course pair of shorts for uh you know blue lagoon and sky lagoon these big they have so many uh uh you know hot springs over there they're all over the place so you dive into those luckily you don't luckily my uh my g-string doesn't take up much room <laughs> so you don't just pack in a you don't just travel with a school backpack like i do and never check it and never check any bags yeah this we couldn't because we had to bring too much gear you know, you need to have yeah. dry suits, you know, uh, you need to have pogies. I mean, it's pretty cold water, um, you know, sleeping bags, ground pack, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think I wouldn't do that trip solely because I couldn't fit everything into my backpack. And that's my, I staunchly like refuse to go on any trip where I can't, can't just fit everything into a little carry on bag. That's, that's my thing. So I think the, uh, the ocean kayaking's out for me, unfortunately, for that reason alone. Yeah, exactly. And definitely no other reason. It's not because I'm scared or incapable of doing it. <laughs> there are definitely a lot of people backpacking over there. You know, it's a big uh, hotbed for hiking trails and, you know, connecting huts for backpacking. And you could get over there pretty easily, minimalist doing that. So kind of on that note, you have uh, written a book about searching for Incan treasure in South America. Uh, and that's another paddling adventure. Uh, clearly we have, we have a theme going with your, with your trips here, but walk me through that because that is not a typical adventure travel trip. That is like a freaking goal setting expedition where we're going to, we're actually on a mission to accomplish something. So let's, let's, let's dive into that a bit. Okay. Well, so, uh, yeah, that book was called, uh, comrades on the Kolka. I did, I hooked up, I've hooked up with this, uh, these Polish explorers, one in particular, a guy named Yurik Mahershik a while back. And he was part of this uh, ragtag group of Poles that went over to uh, Central America and South America in the 80s 
um, under, under the name Cano Andes, and they escaped the Iron Curtain from Poland, the communist rule, kind of broke out of the country, w went there and did this big river running rampage for two years where they did like 23 first descents on a lot of rivers that are now classics, like the Pacuare in Costa Rica, the Usumacinta in Mexico, the Quijos in Ecuador. Their trip culminated with this uh, uh, a, like 18-day rafting trip uh, down Colca Canyon in Peru, which is the world's deepest gorge. They measure uh, canyon's depth by uh, its, uh, its shallowest end. And the Colca is 14,000 feet deep on one side, 11,000 on the other. So they, these guys did the first descent of it, but the top 15 miles had never been done because it's like too steep. It's called the Cruz del Condor section. And uh, that section drops about 3,000 vert in just 15 miles. So Europe calls me, you know, I don't know, nine or 10 years ago um, and says, you know, Eugene, I hadn't heard from him for a couple of years. And he's like, Eugene, Eugene, you know, we go back to Kolka. We want you to come. You know, we do. It is final feather in our cap. This top section has never been run. You must join us. Um, so he sent me some pictures of it, you know, like super low water. Uh, and they were planning on just canyoneering it, you know, backpacking, rappelling, you know, that sort of thing. From the pictures, I said, well, crap, I'd rather have my kayak down there for paddling along all those pools and whatever rapids are negotiable. So I flew straight from Beijing to San Fran to Lima to Arequipa, where some guy met me at five in the morning, drove me up and over the Altiplano, which is like 15,000 feet in Beijing sea level, deposited me at the edge of this cliff where ropes were set up for this 300 foot rappel down into the canyon bottom where these poles were all waiting for me to begin the expedition. So I literally changed out of my Beijing clothes into my spray skirt, rappelled down, landed 10 feet from my kayak, and then we put in and did this upper part of this canyon, only to find out like the next morning I was paddling ahead. And because my Jew, I, I'd kind of paddle ahead and look for ways through, tell them where to you know, set up ropes to get down. And there's these three people hiking up the river, clad in like full wetsuits, big backpacks with climbing gears, didn't speak English. You know, they passed me on the other side. And, you know, I couldn't really talk to him. And that night I asked Yurik, you know, Yurik, who the heck are these guys? You know, you don't, when you're doing a first descent, you don't run into people. And turns out they were members of a rival team, kind of funded by one of Yurik's kind of arch nemesis from his original expedition, uh, trying to beat us to the punch. And he's like, Eugene, Eugene, I'm so angry at these kids. We talk about doing trip together, but they put in before us. You know, what can we do? We have to catch them. So I kind of found myself in this Polish race to the bottom of the earth. So you snuck up on them at night and broke their kneecaps, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, in Europe, it's like, yeah, we can't, we can't kill them. We must catch them. Um, so anyway, I found myself in this Polish, Polish race to the bottom of the earth trying to catch these guys. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what the book's about. You know, we ended up, we ended up, you know, catching them on like day six, but I'll kind of leave it at that. Um, and then I kind of, I will, I've done a lot of, uh, trips and uh, kind of expeditions in South America. So I kind of use that as a context to weave in some of these other tangential stories and some Inca history. And plus, Yurik swears that's where that can that upper canyon is where the Incas hit a lot of their gold um, from the Spaniards. And so there's all these and indeed Colca and in one native dialect means hole or cave and another it means, you know, money, you know, so money cave. But we had our hands full getting through the thing um let alone trying to look for any you know inca riches so so no inca riches for you they didn't get any inca riches i came back with some ecuadorian coins i still had coins i still had in my uh my little waste pack but that's about it
how does the permitting go for these trips? Like, I and and as well with the Baskus in, in Russia, how what do you have to do in advance to be able to take these adventures? You know, something like that in places like Siberia and uh, Peru. I mean, you don't need a permit by any means, especially for doing a uh, a private trip like that. So we got this guy Boris a job here with Knowles, and he was on the first river trip on the River Orienteering Program. First camp, he's there trying to chop down a tree. You know, and they're, and they're like, Knowles, Knowles has the biggest leave no trace ethic there is. And they're like, wait, wait, you can't do that, you know. And so and Lord, Boris is like, huh, this is how we do, you know. And yeah, so there's a bit of a culture, uh, cultural difference there. Is that not chill? I do that when I show up anywhere, new country, new city, someone's backyard. I just chop down a tree just to feel like I'm at home, you know. Is that not okay? Yeah. You're welcome, Matt. I'm curious, do you see adventure travel changing at all in a post-covid world how how is how is that going to play out um not only with, you know with with trips into the wilderness but also just international travel in general what do you think is going to change that's a re- really good question i mean we all know that um the uh the whole adventure travel market internationally has taken it on the chin this past year i mean i have outfitter buddies all over the place in peru and chile and you know, alaska and croatia and belize you know everywhere and they all had a super, super rough year, you know, with travel virtually just stopping. Um, actually, I did a story on the Adventure Travel Trade Association to that effect. Um, and, but conversely, there's, I think, a lot of, a lot of pent-up demand and people are realizing, you know, what am I doing with my life stuck here in this cubicle or wherever, whatever big city I'm in? I got to get out and spread my wings. Life, life is short. There's so much to see. So I think... You know, the commercial side of it uh, is going to be an uphill battle coming back from that. You look at companies like REI, uh, you know, they got out of, you know, they had a huge, huge international adventure travel platform that they do. And they had a built-in consumer base with all their members that they could market to. But they decided just to get out of the game completely internationally. They're sticking domestically that they can control a little more. Um, so internationally, it, it's it's super tough. But I do think you know, knock on wood, when the uh, pandemic kind of passes course um, and herd immunity comes or whatever, that there's a big, big pent up demand for people to want to get out and explore. And a lot of people don't know how to go about it. They're doing it themselves, doing a rafting trip or a sea kayak trip or whatever somewhere. And they're going to have to rely on on outfitters to uh, to walk them through it, which makes it a lot easier. So uh, and I think, you know, the market will always be there for the people, for the, the do-it-yourselfers, you know, the people who go Euro, Euro rail Europe or go, you know, fly down to Chile and go pick up a kayak and go, you know, kayak in for a week or go bike tour somewhere. So those people, uh, ankles do be able to do it. They might have to deal with some COVID protocols. But, you know, once you're out there in the wilderness doing your thing, you're pretty safe. You know, it's not like you're going to con- middle of a, con- you know, 50,000 person concert or something, you know, you're out there on your own. Uh, away from exposure and that sort of thing. So, speaking of adventure travel, the future of adventure travel, I guess I should say, what do you think is? I, I saw a movie a few years ago. It's called uh, "The Lost City of Z." Yeah, yeah, I've read that book. Yeah, these guys like go to what was then called Amazonia in like the early 1900s to find some lost ancient. Mm-hmm. I think it was an Incan city, and I remember watching that, thinking, I wonder if that's still possible. If there are places in the world that no one's been that no one has explored yet that are still like there are exploration teams vying to be the first one to get there and in your story with trying to get there before 
that other team kind of reminded me of it. Where is the best place to go for adventure travelers right now? If they want to be the first to see something or one of the first to traverse uh, a, a, a mountain or river or a remote part of a rainforest, like where is there still like real adventure travel to be had? You know, that's a great question. And it's, and it's, I mean, now, now it's a heck of a lot easier with Google earth. People can kind of pick some place, kind of try to, you know, look at it, discern this gradient, find like, find out where, uh, impediments like waterfalls and stuff might be. There's a couple of big, you know, like Ben Stukesbury on the whitewater kayaking front. I mean, he still charges after it huge, you know, go all over the world looking for things that haven't been run. Um, unfortunately it's getting kind of harder and harder, you know, all the, all the good stuff's been done. So people are starting to do that thing now with little asterisks by it. You know, the first, you know, you know, blind, blind summit of a peak or, you know, the first, you know, crossing of the North Atlantic in a, uh, on a sup or a foil, or, I mean, people have been, like, people have sea kayaked it already. People have rode it, but has anyone foiled it or kiteboarded it or whatever? So people are doing things new ways. Um, you know, like the whole world of supping, that's kind of opened up, you know, a lot of these rivers all over the place have been done, but it might not have been supped. First sup descent of the, you know, of the North Fork of the Payette and, uh, you know, outside of Boise, you know, I'd like to see when that happens, actually, because that's a pretty stout piece of water, but. You won't do it. You won't do it, Eugene. You can't do that. It's too tough for you. I'm not about to try that. Sup in white water is for a, <laughs> kind of a rare few who don't mind getting beat up and worked a little bit. Uh, but anyway, yeah, back to your question. I think, um, there's still plenty of places to go and, you know, who cares if you're the first or not in reality, just get out there and go do it. You know, unless you're, you know, you got that adventure ethos, like all these Antarctica crossings and, you know, that sort of things and linking the poles and the seven summits and combining all this stuff, you know, maybe you combine things first person to do the seven summits and each pole in a, you know, in a year or record time, you're looking at what. Tommy Caldwell and Anna, Alex Honnold have been doing in the climbing world, you know, the Don Wall, you know, free and free and El Cap, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's all sorts of firsts like that as, and the speed records these days is a huge, huge thing for mountaineering, you know, sure. Someone's climbed that peak before, but you know, setting a speed record on it. Take something that's been done before and then put it on hard mode and then do it again. There you go. Yeah. Take a wheel off of your bike and try to do it, you know, something like that. Do it on hopping on one leg. Yeah. Right. So we, we close all of our interviews with a listener question. And for this one, we're going to get a little introspective because I, I think it's, it's relevant for you and some, somebody who's done a lot of big trips. Does adventure travel still remain exciting to you? And what would it take to continue to make it be as exciting as the years go by? Uh, yeah, to me, adventure travel is every bit as exciting as it was when I first uh, kind of started doing it. Um, my first trip doing it was way back when um, I was working as a reporter at the Denver Business Journal in Denver, and I got this opportunity to join that guy, Yurik, on a trip in Ecuador. He needed a class five safety kayaker to join and, and journalist to help join this trip. So that was, if I look back on my career, like every trip like that, I still love that sort of stuff. If something got dropped in my lap, yeah, I'd try to make, uh, make things work to go do it. Because I love getting out there, especially after this last 18 months of staying closer to home, which I must say, you know, it has been great in its own, in its own way. You know, we did a, we did a, we did a river here last year called the white. That's, you know, just two and a half, two and a half hour drive to the put in from our house. 
beautiful canyon, just flat water, class one, two, you know, incredible canyon. And I got in there and I was like, oh my God, how long has this canyon been here? I can't believe I've never done it. Just a canoe trip, but it, you know, it forces you to kind of, you know, open your eyes a little bit about what, what constitutes adventure travel. It doesn't mean flying around the globe and, you know, running, you know, this Vic Falls and minus numbers of the Zambezi below Vic Falls, you know, like, like they, we did this trip just two hours from our door, whole new canyon to us. And no one on our trip had been down the river. So it was uh, like, I mean, it had been done before, sure, like by canoeists and stuff. Um, but none of us had done it, which made it seem like our own exploratory. There's no real river maps to it. You know, so just going out and doing something for the first time, for your own first time, kind of, I think, to me, defines adventure travel. Um, you know, and, and it's just kind of getting out there and rallying. And I don't think that's going to go anywhere but up, especially with the pandemic giving us all a, a swift kick in the pants and a lesson about, hey, time's short, what's important in life. There's a lot out there to explore and see, you know, make the most of it. Yeah. Like we were saying before, it's not about like adventure travel. It isn't just about doing the most extreme thing that no one's ever done before. It's, you know, getting creative and doing something maybe you've never done before. I'll give you another classic example of that is now even around our neck of the woods in Steamboat, you know, pack rafts. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those these little like, you know, tiny bathtub like shaped rafts that only weigh like four pounds. And they're just opening up the world to this unprecedented adventure now. And people are using them in Alaska, you know, to paddle down 10 days down some river, get out, backpack up and over some ridge for a day or two to access another river, float that one north, climb a, climb a ridge, float another river and end up in the Buford Sea. Here they're using them to kind of bring their bikes and link these rivers, like float the Elk River into the Yampa with your bike, get out, bike up this dirt road uh, for a day, put in at some other place, and then float right back down to your start. You know, and there's just all sorts of combos like that. Uh, and it's amazing. And I think, you know, technology and equipment is, is certainly helping that along and creating all these new opportunities for it. Right on. Well, hey, man, thank you for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you? So uh, uh, go to eugenebuchanan.com for any of the books if they want. Uh, I also run the w website paddlinglife.com. So that's kind of a news e-zine for the, uh, the paddling industry. Uh, so go there. You can find, you know, links to all sorts of trips as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, any of the books you can find at, you know, on Amazon or, uh, you know, eugenebuchanan.com. Right on. Well, Eugene Buchanan, thank you. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Take care. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, well, we're here in the takeaway section after a nice chat with Eugene, where I learned firsthand that all of the stories that I have from my personal travels that I thought were badass actually aren't all that badass uh, in the grander scheme of things. But that's an issue I'm going to have to deal with on my own time. The first actual takeaway from today's interview, I feel, was that adventure travel doesn't always have to be a record first. It doesn't always have to be super far away. It doesn't always even have to be anything that other people might even consider to be adventure. Uh, although Eugene's stories certainly are pretty adventurous. Adventure travel is simply finding something that's new to you. And that can be right outside your door. Yeah. About a week from now, Tim is going to be in front of a therapist bawling his eyes out saying, I thought of my life was cool. I thought I did all these cool things, went on some amazing press trips had extreme outdoor experiences. And I met this guy, Eugene, and he just put me to shame. And now I'm wondering, what's it all about? What's life about? Like, what am I doing with myself? So yeah, I think uh, that's something that you're gonna have to self-examine. But to answer your question and to, to address your takeaway, 
uh, yeah, it, it's interesting because we think of adventure as this extreme thing that you have to go to the the edges of the globe to 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 get the most uh, intense, the most memorable adventure and you really don't you could just go drive two hours put it in a river you never explored before and that's an adventure to you because it's not about doing something that no one else has done before it's about doing something that you've never done before or doing something you have done before in a way that you haven't done it so if you've if you've kayaked down a river try stand up paddleboarding down it if you've killed it running a marathon before i eh, run the marathon on one leg and see how that works out for you Right, right, exactly. Uh, an another thing that I think was a pretty important uh, takeaway from today's chat with Eugene is that we none of us have any idea what is happening with the COVID situation. It is constantly changing. Speak for yourself. I know exactly what's happening. I got my finger on the pulse. COVID's playing checkers. I'm playing chess, Tim. Well, I guess maybe where I was going with that and that I didn't word it so well is that, you know, it the COVID situation could come out of nowhere and surprise you when you're on your travels. I mean, obviously they weren't expecting to be uh, exposed to someone who tested positive in rural Iceland right before they went out on a adventure out on the water. You know, that, that, that kind of stuff, you've got to always be ready for curveballs when you're doing adventure trips like this. Yeah. And that blows my mind. How do you, if everyone has to be vaccinated before you enter the country and it's such a remote country where everyone is outdoors all the time, especially tourists, they're always in these remote regions. They're not all flocking to the bars, going to these big concerts. How do you catch COVID in the middle of nowhere? Like where Eugene was, I don't even know how that's possible. So it's probably an ignorant question. I'm sure, you know, past the Reiki Vic, you go to a restaurant, someone has COVID, you get COVID, but the whole thing is just very bizarre to me that that, that that was even an issue for him, that there could be COVID in that kind of a situation. But if you're going to get it, that's where you want to get it. I feel like if you're, as long as you're not um, having a severe case, because you got uh, quarantining means really having time to settle in and enjoy the nature, to go kayaking, to uh, hang out in, you know, a nice like rural kind of cottage like hotel. And it's a, it's a much different experience than having to, stay in your own apartment without leaving or talking to anyone for two weeks in, a, in, in, in an urban environment. Right. That's exactly right. But I think as far as the last takeaway goes, for me, it's adventure wise, I think of kind of extreme adventure travel as being the province of the young, which is probably not fair because I think, I mean, Eugene's probably got 15, 20 years on me and he's done, he and still is still doing things that are way crazier, way wilder, way more dangerous than anything I've done, or probably, let's be honest, will ever do. So at any age, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, whether you've done it before, whether you think you can't do it, just go out and fucking do it. Right. I mean, Eugene's definitely got it going on. I mean, he's old enough to have an 18-year-old daughter, so he's at least 35, and he's still crushing it all over the world doing, you know, paddling trips that most people would never even dream of taking so it really is age is in the eye of the beholder uh i think in, is what eugene is proving and probably did you make that up did you make that phrase up Tim? i i did i'm the first one to ever use it and mm -hmm. he's adventure travel probably should adopt that as its slogan age is in the eye of the beholder i think that's actually the new slogan of the aarp members of the aarp can also take part in adventure travel <laughs> When we're on episode 920, we'll be exclusively catering to 
to an audience of AARP. So <laughs> maybe it's good to get, get some practice on that. That's right. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm EvanFlow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer Alex Halkey, executive producer Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.